Welcome to Cross Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from Pillar 2 to Hong Kong's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. The Pillar 2 engine from PwC is a game changer for Pillar 2 modeling, provision, and compliance calculations. Built on a graph system utilizing over 20 years of international tax technology, this centralized rules engine is built by a team of Pillar 2 tax experts from around the globe. PwC's Pillar 2 engine is up and running as a service and will be available to license in July 2024. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're at PwC's Asia-Pac Global Tax Symposium in Singapore, where I'm excited to be joined by Jesse Cavanaugh. Jesse is an international tax partner in PwC's Hong Kong office and leading the Pillar 2 efforts in the region. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic. Thanks, Doug. Really happy to be here. All right. Well, we've got an amazing view for those listeners that are watching on YouTube. I would encourage them to check it out. But before we dive into Pillar 2, and I'm really excited to talk about Pillar 2 in the region because this is my first visit, visit to Asia Pack officially on the podcast. Before we begin, tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in PwC Hong Kong. Yeah, sure, Doug. It's a, actually a bit of a mixed background. So originally from Australia, moved to Hong Kong back in 2001. So been in the region almost uh, 20 years because I did do a stint for, for four years in the US as well. Okay. So both uh, in-house and, uh, and then joined uh, PwC Hong Kong about four years ago in 2019 and have been focused on Pillar 2 pretty much got lucky it, uh, it started up uh, not long after and, and have been focused in that area since. Yeah, I have found that the, the, the people that I work with that have some of that industry background tend to be very well positioned from a Pillar 2 perspective. And I think that the understanding of systems and data and accounting, frankly, for those of us like myself who've been doing this for almost 25 years just doing international tax, I think it can be a challenge. And I've seen that advisors, particularly with that skill set, have a, a, a unique ability to be able to address some of the pillar two issues. Yeah, agree totally. I think some of those practical things that you see when you're having to work across different groups, not just within tax, and as an advisor, sometimes you can sort of give the advice and, and uh, wash your hands and, and walk away. You can't do that in-house. I, I was also lucky that I uh, was there in the US when we were implementing, practically implementing for US tax reform. And so sort of a lot of the issues that came yeah, up. Yeah, good that timing well. to be in the US then. Absolutely. During TCJA, I'm That's guessing. the one, yes. All right, so last question here and we'll dive in. Favorite sports team? I think it's got to be the Aussie cricket team. Um, I may cop a bit of stick for that, uh, using a, an Aussie vernacular. Okay. Um, they're, uh, they've been playing really well, but uh, sometimes getting a bit of, uh, bit of time for the, uh, the off-the-pitch uh, the uh, activities they're doing. But I see. Still well, pretty I, good. I will acknowledge I don't follow cricket at all, but I'm a big baseball guy. There's a lot in common between the, between the two. All right, so let's dive into some tax stuff. Um, and b before we begin with some of the Pillar 2 stuff, maybe remind listeners and help us understand, just give us a basic framework of the Hong Kong corporate international tax system. Yeah, for sure. Hong Kong's great. It's, it's nice and straightforward. It has a territorial system of taxation. So up until recently, offshore income wasn't taxed in Hong Kong. And capital gains are exempt as well. Rather than giving a lot of incentives, Hong Kong has tried to attract investment through having a very stable, very simple system with a low base tax rate, 16.5. However, it does mean even though you've got a statutory rate of 16.5 because of some of those non-taxed items that often we do see an effective rate below 15. 
Yeah, and Hong Kong was always the example of like the pure territorial regime. When I, I taught international tax for a number of years, and I would compare kind of the old modified U.S. system versus the uh, true sort of territorial system. But there have been some adjustments, which we'll get to the, as part of the offshore regime yes. that we'll get to a little bit later in the podcast. So it's not for, for listeners, it's not all Pillar 2, but we're going to spend a bunch of time on Pillar 2. So um, let's start with, uh, with Pillar 2. What are taxpayers doing in, in Hong Kong? Is, there, um, is everybody at the acceptance stage of the grieving process and uh, really kind of diving in? But give us really a state of play of what you're seeing in Hong Kong. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately not. I think we're still seeing different responses and it's a bit of a spectrum in Hong Kong. We do have a number of groups that I think were very advanced and so worked with them on doing modelling as, as far back as 2021. So actually based on the blueprint before the model rules even came out. Okay. And so I think those groups are on their second or third iteration of the modelling and have moved on from that more into the data challenges that they're facing now. Some have been looking at how do they mitigate some of the impact of the rules, so entity rationalisation, trying to make things simpler so that they've got less compliance to worry about. Yeah, I, I, what, I saw, what I've seen is that those taxpayers that began a couple of years ago were really the ones, generally the larger groups, that were very focused on policy and being very engaged and active yes. in the policy discussions with the OECD. And obviously they wanted to understand what the potential consequences of Pillar 2 would be to them, which is admittedly a small group, even for US MNCs and really around the globe. And it sounds like Hong Kong was, was similar. Yes. Unfortunately, at the other end of the extreme, we do still have some groups that are saying, Jesse, don't come and talk to us. You'll waste our time until the rules are actually in effect in Hong Kong. I think some of those groups may get a bit of a shock when the rules do come in at how much needs to be done with a short time frame. But having said that, there are some changes on the accounting disclosure, which I think are changing that attitude. So I think more and more groups now are saying, actually, we do have to take this seriously and we have to do it this year. Yeah, clearly those groups are not listening to the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast because they would be in a frenzy if they were. But yeah, your point is well taken and that uh, the the accounting rules, and maybe I'll get you to talk a little bit about IS-12 because sure. um, I'm a... Uh, you obviously, US-based US uh, advisor, spent a lot of time with US GAAP, but we've recently, within the last couple months, have gotten some additional advice from the International Accounting Standards Board, and specifically something what is referred to as IS-12. Yes. So tell us how the International Accounting Standards Board is, uh, um, is, is telling those filers on how they need to deal with Pillar 2. Yes, yeah, certainly. So I think we've got some good news and some news that maybe isn't so welcome. The good news, and a bit like US GAAP from my understanding, no deferred tax right. calculation or recognition uh, or disclosure for Pillar 2. So, so that's the good news. Unfortunately though, the ISB went a bit further and said we want some targeted disclosure for the users of the financial statements. And we want that to apply in years where the rules have been substantially enacted but are not yet in force. And so for many groups, that's going to mean 2023. Yeah, for the calendar year filers. Correct, yeah. correct. And so it means that groups that may have been thinking they're not going to have to do anything until provision in 2024 will actually have to do an assessment for 2023 and give both qualitative and quantitative disclosure for 2023. I think that's leading to a couple of open issues as well and a couple that, that we've seen recently that have come up. Exactly what level of detail do you need to go into to make sure that your auditors are going to be comfortable with that and, and eventually, if at all, any external scrutiny. But then also what happens if you're a subgroup? And so 
a couple of conglomerate groups that we work with. As everyone knows, the rules need to be calculated at the ultimate parent right. of the group. But if you're a subgroup and you only have a subset of the data, if you're disclosing an impact assessment based on that subset, is that going to be helpful to your financial statement users? I don't think we've got a, a, an open, a, a clear answer to that yet. Yeah, and obviously the challenges for those subgroups, and we saw, we've seen this, and we recently had Winnie Tang on the podcast talking about kind of the challenges of the private equity industry where they have a number of different subgroups and then doing those calculations individually when obviously, as you mentioned, it has to be done at the multinational enterprise. And then as you combine constituent entities and the jurisdictions, what type of quirky results may exist if you're reporting by subgroup and not doing it collectively? Yes, absolutely. Um, what about any other challenges you're seeing from a kind of a accounting perspective, um, particularly as... Um, we think about deferred assets um, as just one example I know that we've been challenged with. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the things very recently is looking at what needs to be done again in 2023. So we've talked about disclosure, but scrubbing the, the deferred tax asset balance sheet. And just to, to unpack that a little. So everyone wants to be able to use their deferred tax assets once the rules are in place, the, the DTAs that have arisen pre-regime. And the reason for that is when that deferred tax asset reverses, you get a tax expense and that can increase your ETR and, and be helpful. In order to use those carry forward deferred tax assets though, the rules require that those DTAs need to be recognised or disclosed or recognised or reflected in the financial statements for the transition year. And so that means that this year is the, the time that needs to be done for, for most groups, for most jurisdictions. And looking at some groups that I've worked with in the past, they haven't necessarily been as disciplined, perhaps around the recognition or, or the recording and tracking of all those of those deferred tax assets, particularly if it relates, for example, to, to carry forward losses right. that haven't been recognised in the accounts um, and, and for some of the smaller offshore jurisdictions. Yeah, and I think the practical issue with that, and I think we've also seen that with, with US gap filers as well, if you are going to recognise a deferred tax asset and then also have a VA, those were just going to wash, and so was it really material yes, or not for purposes exactly. of the overall financial statements? And that can be all of a sudden be a lot different now if, as we start thinking about Pillar 2 liability, whether something is material or not for the financial statements may not be as relevant for purposes of like how much tax you may owe in a particular jurisdiction. Exactly. The other thing that, that, um, that we're seeing is um, with respect to deferred tax liabilities and the new requirement to effectively track the potential reversal of those um, yes. over five years. Yes. And so just another kind of item that if taxpayers have not really started thinking about this and are in the camp of, oh, we're gonna wait for the rules, I mean, you have to scrub those as well. You need to put in a process because I'm not aware of any filers or taxpayers that were thinking about that in the context of a deferred tax liabilities in the context of a five-year window. Yes, and, and we'll come on to talk about some of the changes in Hong Kong's domestic tax system in a sec, but one of the things that may link in with what you've just said is to the extent that you've got offshore interest income that hasn't been remitted back to Hong Kong, if you need to bring a, a detail for that in the future and you're not going to reverse that within five years, does that lead to, to one of those issues? That ah, you're great about? point. Yeah, very relevant for Hong Kong with the new system. So a little teaser for the, the end of the, the, the podcast, but I hadn't, hadn't focused on that issue, but it's, it's a good one. So we're seeing a lot of taxpayers that um, are looking at the, the safe harbors, right? Um, and I, we've had a, a number of discussions on the podcast here about really how much of a safe harbor is the safe harbor and really how simplifying, I guess, is it for country for companies that really need to spend some time scrubbing their country by country reports. 
Um, any trends or things that you're seeing from a Hong Kong perspective? Is it similar to kind of the rest of the world where taxpayers are really kind of focusing on what, what, what data should be in there, how do they source it, and then trying to answer the big question of is it qualifying? Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think there's a lot of interest, a lot of groups are hoping to rely as much as possible on the safe harbours. We do see a couple of groups already that have made the assessment, though, that they don't think they're going to qualify. And the two situations that have generally been giving rise to that, one is groups that have got a lot of permanent establishments, and those permanent establishments don't have the, the requisite standard of accounting and right. or accounts for those PEs. And second, a couple of private groups where perhaps some of the entity is further up the chain, maybe there's no consolidated accounts at all, or some of those entities just aren't preparing, the, the, again, the requisite uh, accounting level uh, gap. Yeah, and the challenge, just to unpack that on, the, on the, the permanent establishments, is that I think oftentimes, and particularly for country by country, or just general accounting purposes, all of the P&L activity that's taking place at the PE really just rolls into the home office. And so to your point that there aren't standalone financials for that permanent establishment is a problem, right? Yes. Because that permanent establishment, even if it's a, a guy and a dog, as the analogy that I like to give, that is a constituent entity underneath the rules if it meets that, you know, the, the definition and therefore there needs to be some process that's put in place to have a separate P&L for that and just many groups do, good groups don't do it. I think for the same reason that we don't see a lot of this because frankly it's not material and maybe hasn't mattered in the past. Yes, I'd love to see hopefully in the future that having a single jurisdiction that breaches that for, for a reason doesn't necessarily mean that the entire group or the entire CBC is breached. Yeah, the UK had proposed some rules or had proposed uh, as part of their administrative guidance. And I, I assume that that was one of the driving reasons, but they had put in their administrative guidance that if you didn't qualify for one particular jurisdiction, that it wouldn't kick you out for, for others. Um, unfortunately, we don't have that language in the existing model rules, commentary, or administrative guidance. And so I think that would certainly be some welcome uh, news from the OECD and the next round of administrative guidance that one disqualifying just because you simply don't have the accounting or it's not material doesn't disqualify the entire uh, country by country report. I agree totally. Okay, so the I, I, taxpayers starting with with country by country and the safe harbors before having to dive into the globe calculations. I will say that. Um, I've had at least one taxpayer make the comment to me after spending a whole lot of time with the country by country reports and trying to clean up the country by country reports, asking me, is this really a safe harbor? Does this, uh, this is really only a three-year test. We're spending this much time on trying to clean up the country by country report for purposes of making it qualifying. Might it just be easier to do the full globe income calculation since we know the country by country report is even uh, temporary? I didn't have a great answer to that. I think it obviously it's going to depend on the taxpayer and the quality of data. I think at least from my experiences that relying on the safe harbors and the country by country data is going to be easier, um, albeit there still may be some lift than the overall globe calculations. But I don't know if you have any reaction to that general statement. Yeah, no, look, I'd agree totally. The, the, many of the groups that I'm working with have got different financial systems in different jurisdictions. And to the extent that they can satisfy a safe harbour for that jurisdiction so they don't have to try and grapple with bringing data from a different uh, financial system, that, that's going to be very helpful for them. 
maybe one or two groups that are a bit more standardised, single, single ERP, single ledger, single everything, maybe it doesn't make a big difference. They can just run all the calculations at once, but generally I'd agree totally. And what is, because it's been interesting to me as far as, as I've travelled around the globe and talked to a number of folks about um, kind of the, the ERP systems in their country. I remember we had an opportunity to sit down with our, our colleague Arnie Schnitger in, in, in Germany and um, I guess maybe not surprisingly, a huge por portion of the German market is on a single ERP system. I think as I think about US and, and particularly other jurisdictions in Europe, we often see a whole smattering of different ERP systems. And of course, you know, it depends and there's exceptions to that, but if the, if the company has been very active on deals, for example, then there may be a smattering of ERP systems. Any general thoughts from Hong Kong, or is it a similar mixed bag to the US? A very much mixed bag. Um, so uh, SAP, Oracle, a number of the big ones, a lot of different consolidation systems, but also some groups that have perhaps grown up a bit more organically and still have uh, some of the, the smaller systems as well. And sticking with the, the, the data piece, um, has it surprised many taxpayers that, frankly, not all of that information can be found within an ERP system? Because I think one of the misconceptions, particularly for those taxpayers that maybe haven't spent as much time with the rules, that, well, all the information can be found in an ERP system, and even if you have a singular ERP system, then this should be easy. And I think from my experiences, you know, there is a limited amount of data um, that will be in the ERP systems and other information and payroll is just one, for example, that you're not going to find in there. Um, but what, what have taxpayers in Hong Kong been, been struggling with? Yeah, absolutely. So the two things that come to mind recently on that, one very specific example around dividends and portfolio dividends, a bit more in the financial services industry, but being able to track that. Sure. The front office systems don't collect that data at the required granularity. And that's a real problem because that can be a material impact to the, the sure. calculation. Uh, the second one I think is on what I've sort of termed deconsolidation. And so as, as we know, the financials that go into the consolidated financials is what needs to be used, which means you've got to push down your consolidation entries, your topside adjustments, etc. apart from a couple of exceptions. And working with groups, the tax team has no idea what's in the consolidation uh, journals whereas the consolidation team has no idea around the Pillar 2 rules. And so trying to bridge that gap and put a process in place to be able to allocate those down properly. That, it's such a good point, Jesse. And we see that particularly for, for U.S. gap filers. I mean, I think it is very common to have, you know, even one entity, right, within the consolidation system that deals with those topside ledger yes. or those topside adjustments. And then you have to really unpack that ledger under the Pillar 2 rules and push that down and the, the accounting folks just have not done that before um, because they have a need to do because most of that stuff was intercompany. It would have all consolidated out anyway. And having to think through that can be a, a pretty big lift. Yeah. We, we had one client come to us, the tax team come to us and said, can you help us on that? They sent us through an Excel, had 2,000 line items, each with an 8 to 16 character description. And there was nothing we could do. The, the tax team couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. It's yeah, it's going to be a challenging challenge. process for, for some Wow, groups. yeah, I haven't seen one that long, but that would be a lot to unpack. All right, so let's stick with uh, modeling and calculation challenges, because I know, Jesse, you have spent a lot of time um, thinking about kind of the calculation side, but obviously before you can bend the calculation, that's why I wanted to start with, you got to have the right data. Um, but as we think about some of the modeling and calculation challenges, what are some of the things that you've seen uh, taxpayers in Hong Kong struggle with? Yeah, quite a few uh, issues that have been coming up. Uh, the first one 
is around uh, jurisdictional blending and netting. So having entities that are profitable and entities that are in a loss, bring those two together, relatively straightforward, but the one gap we often see is not having the deemed deferred tax benefit for those loss entities. And for a couple of sophisticated, sophisticated groups we worked with, that was the difference between a 25 versus a 10% ETF. Oh yeah, I can see that moving the needle. Yeah. Uh, second one, not restating to deferred taxes to 15%, relatively straightforward one in terms of technical, but the operationalizing of that can be challenging. Uh, and second, again, in deferred taxes, the ignoring the uh, valuation allowances um, or the, for IFRS, the, the recognition adjustments okay. and the reversal of those uh, is an issue. Another one, perhaps a bit more process driven, including VAT, sales taxes, property taxes, other non-covered taxes. And the reason for that, I think the tax people listening to this will, will know that they're not covered taxes. Right. But often they're working with local finance teams, giving a data template, and the local finance team reads it, and they just read tax. And so then they think anything that's tax needs to go in, in that template. And so we've seen that happen quite a few times where extra taxes are being put in. Yeah, and as, as you, you talk about kind of the, the need to get the information from the local teams, um, in, in Hong Kong generally, because we, we talk about kind of what I, I talk about, a decentralized versus a centralized approach to Pillar 2. And what I found is really depending on the country, and it may not always depend on the country, but obviously it will depend on the particular taxpayer, but those groups with a you know, significant tax function in the ultimate parent entity or at the head jurisdiction are obviously in a lot better spot to be able to do those calculations. We see in a number of jurisdictions, and Japan is one that comes to mind that tends to have leaner tax departments, but then relies on more of a decentralized process where they get all their tax information from the, from the subsidiaries. And Pillar 2 really presents a unique challenge, right? Because you need to be able to get the data from the, the subsidiaries and the information, but then it requires the somebody in the center to actually put all of those various pieces together. Yes. Generally speaking, are Hong Kong groups, you know, larger tax departments is more centralized or decentralized? Very much on a decentralized model. So okay. the, the tax departments in Hong Kong tend to be very lean and almost everyone we've been working with is taking that decentralized model. It's a really good point around the, the different levels or layers to that. One of the things we first we got it wrong was we worked with the local central team to push the, the data request out and they pushed out all 250 data points. And then the local finance teams looked at that and they were overwhelmed. A number of those data points actually belong to or, or are owned by the central team. Okay. And so needing to split that data request so that you're only asking the relevant things to the relevant local teams meant that we were getting a much more effective response uh, rather than just pushing that full data catalogue out. Great piece of practical advice. And so instead of just looking at what are all the data points that we need for each constituent entity and just sending that off, particularly where you have a, a decentralized type environment, it is important for, frankly, whoever's sitting upstairs, so to speak, to actually spend some time to figure out, all right, what information do we think is actually down at the subsidiary level? What is the information that we know is not yes. right to be able to try to make that as efficient as, as possible? I think that's a very some good practical advice there, Jesse. So what about, I know it's also common in Hong Kong to have Hong Kong groups 
where the listed parent may be in another jurisdiction. And yes. so that, that's probably an alternative to the centralized, decentralized model. I'm not exactly sure how to describe that, but how are taxpayers in that particular fact pattern? And I don't think that's unique to Hong Kong. I think there are a number of other jurisdictions and there are some, frankly, even U.S. groups where the tax department sits in the U.S. and maybe they have a non-U.S. parent. Um, how are those types of groups uh, approaching Pillar 2? Yes, certainly. So just to, to give a bit more context there, often for commercial reasons, historically, there were non-Hong Kong entities that were listed, as you say, albeit that the operations of the group were often managed from Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And I think a number of the jurisdictions where those groups were listed, it's unclear whether they're going to bring in Pillar 2 rules. And so there are questions around if there's no Pillar 2 rule brought in at the ultimate parent, is there going to be a filing at that level or at a surrogate level? Are there questions around dual location and having to apply the sort of the tiebreaker in the rules to work out is the residence of the ultimate parent in the actual place of incorporation or somewhere else? And so there are a number of more practical questions that are coming through on how groups are going to, to apply with that. Yeah, and that question of, well, if the ultimate parent entity is not implementing the rules, is there still going to be a filing requirement very much resonates with me because this is a question that we're getting a lot from for U.S taxpayers, right, mm. where the U.S. will not be implementing Pillar 2, at least in my humble opinion, at least for the next couple of years. We'll see what happens after the next presidential election, but with a split Congress, the likelihood of having any form of Pillar 2 legislation, I think, is, is was very challenging. And so the issue is, well, what, if any, filing requirement is the U.S. as the ultimate parent entity going to have? And I think everybody's waiting for guidance from, from Treasury, but does provide an interesting challenge. And then obviously we'll, we still need to wait from the OECD's additional administrative guidance on actually what the compliance and filing requirements are going to be. But could be a, a challenge depending on what that ultimate parent entity is whether they are actually going to have some form of filing requirements, and if not, how do those filing requirements work for the various IR, QDMTT, UTPR jurisdictions? And I think that's going to play in, particularly for Hong Kong and some other jurisdictions as well, around the QDMTT that Hong Kong's bringing in. Mm. Hong Kong has historically been a very uh, data-driven uh, tax review uh, jurisdiction, and so uh, the authorities have often wanted to go into detail around the documents, the supporting data for the calculations. And if that approach continues for Pillar 2, will that then suggest that they're going to want access to all of the information? Will it be through information sharing between jurisdictions or will they be asking for something incremental from, from taxpayer groups? And Hong Kong has publicly announced when they will be enacting at least some of these Pillar 2 rules. What is the status from a Hong Kong perspective on Pillar 2? Yes, certainly. So announced that plans to bring in the rules for 2025, and that would include both the IAR and the uh, domestic minimum tax, likely a UTPR as well, although it wasn't totally clear from, from the announcement, but, but very, very likely. So that it'll be 2025, so an Correct. extra year for, for taxpayers in Hong Kong. We've seen, I think, Singapore has made a similar announcement as far as postponing to, to 2025. It'll be interesting as we progress here through 2023 if other countries, you know, maybe push back. Obviously, certain countries like in the EU, for example, because the EU directive, I think, have to stick to the 2024 um, deadline. But it will be interesting to see if any other jurisdictions kind of follow Hong Kong's approach. Yes. I think just one Quick thing to add on that, we talked about disclosure before when rules are substantially enacted being a, a, a decisive point for that. 
it's not clear, but I think it's very likely that the Hong Kong rules won't be substantially enacted until 2024. Okay. So hopefully give a little bit of breathing space for at least some jurisdictions for, uh, for this year. And how does that legislative process work? Because I know, for example, like in Korea and Japan, their legislative process, the reason that they have already enacted these rules is that in order for them to be effective, 1-1-24, they actually had to do those back at the end of 2022. Um, how does that Hong Kong system work? Will they be able to introduce and enact the rules all in the same year, potentially in 2024? Yes, yeah, no, no problem there. We, we do expect a consultation process first. Okay. The, the government doesn't need to do so, but has announced that they will, will likely do so. Um, but from a legislative process, no, there's no uh, issue with that. Yeah, that has been a favorable trend I think we've seen with Pillar 2 is the number of jurisdictions that have, been, have started a consultation practice to hear from stakeholders, including taxpayers, academics, advisors, and I think that's certainly a welcome addition to, to the pr legislative process around the globe. And I know some countries actually require that under their legislation, but for those that don't, I think that's very helpful. Absolutely. Okay, so let's, as, as remiss as I am, uh, let's move on from Pillar 2 because there was uh, another big development that was uh, effective January 1st, 2023, and it was a result of Hong Kong being added to the EU's gray list or watch list in October of 2021. And so effective January 1st, 2023, Hong Kong introduced something called the Foreign Source Income Exemption Regime for Passive Income. Jesse, tell us a little bit about, about this. Yeah, sure. So, so big picture, we talked before about Hong Kong have a t having a territorial system, offshore income not being taxed. The pressure from the EU has forced Hong Kong to change that approach. And so for certain types of passive income, as you mentioned, so interest, dividends, gains from disposal of, of equity securities and income from intellectual property, to the extent that they're offshore sourced, they will now be taxable in Hong Kong unless you can meet a, a, one of a, a number of exceptions. For, we'll start with the intellectual property. There's a modified nexus approach. Okay. If we go back to the other three, uh, economic substance will be one of the exceptions and different types of economic substance that you might look at for different types of uh, activity, whether you're a pure equity holding company or have broader operations. And then there's participation exemptions subject to tax uh, type exemptions as well. But broadly, this is requiring some level of activity, economic activity and nexus within Hong Kong in order to be able to claim that offshore approach in the future. All right. So the days of the pure territorial system, we now have a bit of a modified type of system that uh, Hong Kong understandably kind of introduced as a, I think, as a reaction to, to some of the EU rules. Um, or to the being put on the, the EU gray list. So I think important for, for listeners to, to know if they have interest, IP income, dividend income, or disposal on gains, just to make sure that you can meet one of those exemptions or potentially be subject to the, I was presumably the full corporate rate of tax in Hong Kong. Yes, and perhaps two just quick points if I could add, that there is a current process going through that would expand that gains provision, so it won't just be gains on equity securities in the future. Okay. Still, uh, that needs to, to play out to see exactly what's going to be covered. And then the final point, a bit more practical, groups are often looking at this now, but looking at it in conjunction with Pillar 2. While they may have wanted to get the lower tax rate in Hong Kong in the past, take advantage of the offshore income regime, if that's just going to be topped up to 15 under Pillar 2, maybe there's not the advantage of doing that anymore. And so some groups are trying to think about this, what's going to ease our compliance burden? What's the simplest 
uh, measure to take. And let's just go with that because we know that we've got the pillar two rules anyway. Yeah, it's a great point. And maybe just to unpack that, because I think it's worth mentioning that. So even if you can meet one of these exceptions that is, you know, now specifically required to be able to, to, to not pay Hong Kong tax on that, if you are not subject to tax, then presumably you're going to be subject to tax somewhere else whether it's an income inclusion rule jurisdiction for a parent company of Hong Kong or even the under tax profit rule. And so it is an interesting choice that I think taxpayers kind of have is like, well, do you just fail this exemption test and pay the tax in Hong Kong? Or depending on, you know, whether it's an IR or UTPR, do you pay the, the pillar two tax? It's kind of six to one, half dozen to the other, but presumably compliance and, and ease will, will, will dictate kind of where taxpayers may be willing to, to, to pay the tax. Absolutely. And we've actually seen a couple of groups that have been in long running disputes with the tax authority around whether their income is offshore or not, getting to the point of thinking, okay, in the future, it's just going to be easier to take the position that we're going to be taxable under pillar two, get rid of the dispute, save everyone's resource, and it's a, a much simpler res result going forward. Yeah, well, this was a really big change. I remember when it was being proposed at the end of the the calendar year last year and then enacted officially in January 1, 2023. So it is applicable for taxpayers this year, a, a big change. And then, you know, little did we know what was coming with pillar two as some of these discussions were, were ongoing. And so to your point, may have muted some of the, the consequence, um, but certainly important for, for taxpayers to be aware. Absolutely. Um, all right, so um, maybe just in conclusion here, Jesse, any general advice for, for taxpayers um, for Hong Kong or frankly other taxpayers in the region as we sit in our Asia pack, um, moving back to, to, to pillar two and uh, really getting ready and, and just general advice for taxpayers? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm sure this is going to be yeah, consistent everywhere, but absolutely needing to start now and particularly focused on what needs to be done for 2023. So we talked about the disclosure requirements, scrubbing your deferred tax asset balance sheet um, and making sure you've done the impact assessments to know how you can be planning to move into that disclosure and provision. Yes, yeah. I, I ask most of my guests that I'm interviewing from outside the U.S., and it's amazing. It's a very similar response. It's just yeah. like you know, get get out of the denial phase into the acceptance phase. Work yourself through those other phases and get ready, because for those of us that have worked through a lot of these calculations, it is a very big lift, and the data challenges should not be underestimated. And you know, putting the appropriate teams together to be able to address, frankly, all yes. the issues that we've done. Um, frankly, for me, as, as more of a tax lawyer and less of a tax accountant, I've had to spend a lot of time over the course of the last 18 months really kind of unpacking and relearning some of the stuff from my undergraduate in accounting on, on deferred taxes. Yes. And uh, I feel like from, from the, the, the fact that we've had a chance to work together, you were a little ahead of me. And again, I, I may attribute that to some of your experiences working in industry, um, but it really is a big lift for organizations and making sure that you've got the appropriate teams um, to be able to address all these issues is really important. Absolutely, 100%. And I, I've gone into a couple of meetings uh, with, say, the, the audit committee or the CFO and said, I don't think this is a tax project. I think this is a broader finance project. And, and sometimes I get laughed at and everyone says, no, of course, this is a tax project. But it, it, your point to the teams, this needs such a cross-functional response to be effective that, that I think tax has to be part of it, but I don't think... Uh, can can run the entire thing themselves. Yeah, and, and, and it's an interesting point with respect to who ultimately should lead it. I, I think from a, it depends on the groups. I think 
you know, for the most part, I think major, you know, big organizations view this, well, ultimately this is a tax, so the tax group needs to run it. But to your point, we need the systems people, you need accounting people, and I have seen some other groups where, frankly, the more systems data people were leading the charge. We'll see as that evolves, as processes are put in place. But uh, an important point for taxpayers to consider of who's, who should be leading this and then who should be on the team. Absolutely. Just one point if I can pick up on that. So from your discussion earlier on today, I was uh, lacking enough to be in the audience and saw on the, the polling question that you asked for, for the audience and I think it was 10 or 11% of groups were saying that the project is being led by finance or, or non-tax and I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see that larger percentage I was expecting lower. Yeah, there was quite a mix of different mm. different groups that were leading Pillar 2. Obviously, the inner, the, the tax department was the largest, but yes. I, it was a, a bigger percentage that, that I had anticipated. All right, well, Jesse, a fascinating conversation. Great being able to sit down with you here in Singapore, and thank you for sharing the perspective on Hong Kong. Fantastic. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Doug. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Jesse Cavanaugh, a Hong Kong-based PwC international tax partner. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Services Global Leader. Stay tuned for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.